MSW Media. Why did the FBI believe that Donald Trump was compromised by the Russians? And what can we do about it? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Dew, Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Steve Hungsberg, Ari Lamstein, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. All one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, you know, Patty, I, I think one thing that people have kind of, it's been shuttered to the background with so much uh, other news going on as of late. Really, there has been a, a, an, an, a real change at the DOJ and FBI. I mean, just today, Donald Trump was on Twitter attacking his own FBI director, slamming him for um, not, you know, for talking too, too much in Trump's view about the Russian threat. We just heard last week from the attorney for the whistleblower, who, of course, l- alleged that Russian intelligence um, is, b- you know, was was uh, being hidden by the administration. They were pressuring him to not put out any more intelligence reports about Russian attacks on our electoral systems. And it really seems to me that Trump is doing whatever he can to transform at very least the DOJ from the inside. It seems like Chris Reyes is resisting it at the FBI, but in the DOJ, you know, Bill Barr recently announced he had a uh, speech sort of celebrating the fact that he's transformed the DOJ uh, to serve Trump's political ends. Yeah. I, you know, this has been a a shocking week and I, and I'm trying to think of a week that hasn't been shocking. And, and that's, (laughs) you know, I was thinking about how, you know, when you're thirsty, you, you, you know, when you're a kid and you get the the water hose and, and you'd go for a sip, but, but some, your friend would, you know, crimp it and bend it so that, that no water was coming out. And then, of course, they'd let it go and you hit with it in the face with a huge amount of water. <laughs> um, this is like trying to take a sip out of, a, a, you know, out of uh, Old Yeller or, um, you know, the uh, fire hydrants. Uh, you, you just hit in the face constantly um, with appalling moments like this week uh, Pence's uh, former uh, policy advisor for the coronavirus you know shared some really shocking things and I was thinking about as you were talking you know everything is simply for the political aspirations the narcissism the maniacal egotism of this guy of this president and it's just I can't anymore Renato I'm like a lot of your followers it's just like 
yes, he, you know, has completely um, worked to make sure that he delegitimizes everything, every aspect of our government is responsible for, whether it's the FBI or the post office or the CDC. I mean, it's just, it's, it's too much, but um, you know, when we heard, uh, you know, Peter say that he felt that the president had been compromised by Russia, like that should have been enough. Every single thing should be enough for NATO. And it's simply not. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, we when when I started this podcast a couple of years ago and, you know, I think, you know, you and I were discussing the the format for it and we were going to have sort of the issue of the week or the biggest news item of the week and focus on in depth on one issue. And it just seems like right now every week there's so much to cover. And it's really because um, I feel like Trump is is d- trying and working overdrive to dismantle uh, a lot of the institutions or, or reshape a lot of the institutions that uh, many of us think are important, whether it's the post office or the ju- Department of Justice, and is doing so much to try to um, – you know, we have almost there's almost a um, uh, a a um, burn it all down uh, mentality for this election. And I think, you know, you you mentioned what that um, uh, staffer, former staffer said yesterday. It's hardly surprising. I mean, that's the crazy thing. None of us are surprised that the president of the United States doesn't care about the lives of Americans. Um, but that's just another day. Right. It didn't even the, the news cycles already moved on. Right. Uh, before we move on, by the way, uh, <laughs> I when I said drinking from a, a geyser, I meant to say Old Faithful. And apparently I said Old Yeller instead because my brain was thinking about the sad dog movie. So my apologies for anyone who's like, what does she mean by Old Yeller? <laughs> <laughs> my brain is just like completely fried by this. You know, it's just insane. Yeah, I have to say, look, um, it is. It, it, yeah, you're not the only one. I think all of us are trying our best to deal with this. I get a lot of, you know, questions and inquiries from people, you know, sort of what can we do and is there any hope? And, you know, I think recently, by the way, it was it's been from DOJ alums who are just very alarmed, particularly after uh, Barr's latest speech. But I guess what I would say is, you know, we I think we really have to do fight tooth and nail to preserve as much of our institutions as possible. You know, I there's a lot of countries out there that have democracies on paper, but what has made our country work are the institutions we have, the the courts and the rule of law and, you know, having functioning um, electoral process that we all can believe in. So I, I have to say um, there's a lot to fight for. And, you know, our guest this week is someone who I've wanted to have on the podcast for some time. Um, it's Peter Strzok. And I don't really need to probably explain to most of you who Peter Strzok is. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably very aware. You know, he was somebody who, you know, worked on the Clinton email investigation, was heading up um, the Russia investigation at the FBI. Uh, and he was ultimately um, taken off that investigation by Robert Mueller after the discovery of text messages between himself and um, a, fe- a, a fellow FBI employee who he was having an affair with 
And in those text messages, they spoke uh, very ill of Donald Trump, uh, to put it mildly. And um, as I think everyone knows, Donald Trump has dis- has made Mr. Strzok a kind of a centerpiece of his allegation that the FBI is corrupt and trying to take him down and so on. And really has, you know, featured him in speeches and in tweets and so on and so forth. And so to me, you know, he is a very, very interesting uh, person and somebody to get a lot of perspective from. You know, you have somebody who was a public servant for so many years of his life and did work so hard for this country and his entire life has been turned upside down. So I'm very interested to hear what he has to say. And so let's bring in Peter Strzok. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. So I, I have to say, you, I have obviously um, been following um, your saga for quite some time, and I find um, your career just fascinating. Uh, you are somebody, you know, you've been a career FBI agent. Tw- you know, you served 22 years in the FBI. What made you join the FBI? Uh, it was an ad, I think, in the Washington Post looking for analysts uh, in the terrorism arena following the Oklahoma City bombing. I was uh, leaving the Army. Uh, I knew I wanted to stay in public service, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And uh, there was this uh, advertisement um, looking for folks to look work CT, and it looked fascinating. Uh, you know, I wasn't one of these folks who knew they wanted to be an FBI agent from the time they were six, but... Uh, I applied, and it was a great decision. Um, I would absolutely do all of it all, uh, all over again. Yeah, I feel like anybody who's, who ha- spends that long in law enforcement has it in their blood. I, I, I was a federal prosecutor for some time and had the honor of working with, with many agents who spent their careers uh, in the Bureau. And for, for many of those people, there's a, a public service that, that people don't understand at the core of what they're doing. They feel very fulfilled and proud of the work that they do and um, make a lot of sacrifices. And I, I think, um, you know, people probably don't understand all that's involved. Can you give us a sense of, of, you know, some of the challenges that came with being an FBI agent throughout your career? Um, Sure. I mean, again, I think these are, these are kind of common to anybody who serves in a public service capacity. I mean, you are, the, the benefit is you're doing things that are immediately and tangibly related to the good of the nation. You're serving the American people. And my experience is, you know, that isn't something said lightly. And I'm sure you saw it as a prosecutor, but, you know, every every day walking in and knowing that you were doing something that's helping the nation is profoundly satisfying and humbling. And you know, people recognize that. That wasn't something where, you know, it was kind of ignored or, you know, sitting there in the background. I think it was uh, you know, th- that was what drove people. And, you know, you, you work long hours, you're, you're getting paid, uh, you know, in many cases far less than you can make in the private sector. Um, you know, certainly as an agent, you know, you're placing yourself in danger. And, you know, not like, you know, a, a you know, a police work is obviously far more dangerous on a day-to-day basis. But, you know, that element of, you know, you're putting on a gun every day and there's, you know, the kind of responsibility and hazard that comes along with that uh, is real. So, yeah, I, I think it was, again, looking back, such an extraordinarily satisfying experience, not only from a service perspective, but you know, also an intellectual perspective. I mean, you're you're going in and you're working cases against the best that any foreign nation can throw against you. And in the counterintelligence context, that is 
Russia's best and brightest. It is China's best and brightest. It is all the folks around the globe who are seeking to do the U.S. harm. And to be able to line up on the other side against that is is enormously challenging and, and really, really satisfying. Well, you know, as a, when I was a, a federal prosecutor, I was working more with agents on the criminal side. But obviously, counterintelligence is its own beast. We've had some other former counterintelligence agents on our podcast. I'm wondering... Um, for you, did that? Did you ever feel um, uh, a danger to yourself or to your family based on the fact that you were involved in counterintelligence work and going up against these foreign uh, agencies? Um, no, because I think the the rules of the road are pretty well established. That you know, countries don't touch each other's um, their own intelligence officers and 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 you know, or counterintelligence officers. I, you know, that obviously when you look at the Russians, I mean, they're they're very kind of actively going after defectors or people who used to be Russian uh, folks affiliated with their intelligence services. I mean, that was Sergei Skripal and the attempted assassination of him in uh, in in the UK. And, and without confirming or denying any of this, there's been public reporting uh, about, you know, surveillance type activity within the United States trying to find people. But there is a red line there. I mean, we don't we, we, we don't go after each other's officers. So I didn't feel you know, compared to what came later with, with some of the other stuff, I, I never felt um, from the CI perspective that there was any sort of a danger there. Yeah, I think you picked up on some of the contrast that I'm setting up a little bit here. I will say that, you know, one thing that, of course, is fascinating about your career, if anyone takes a look at your career, you've worked on two of the most consequential investigations in United States history. You worked, you led the um, Clinton email investigation. Uh, and then you ultimately led for a period of time the Russia investigation. And, you know, regarding the Clinton email investigation, what I find interesting there is, of course, you, you I when I look at and read about your background, you're more of a counterintelligence guy. What what got you on to the uh, Clinton email investigation? Uh, well, I think, a you know, I was called over at some point. I was uh, an assistant special agent in charge over at the Washington field office and, uh, you know, got called in one day to, you know, bring to come onto the team and with a with a partner of mine who and great analyst uh, to lead that thing but i think there are a couple of things when you when you look at the espionage work and kind of investigations into mishandling and uh, classified information there's a disproportionate amount of that work that occurs in the fbi's washington field office and it's kind of a um a sort of niche sort of specialty and I had, for better or worse, a lot of experience both as an investigator and then as a supervisor at various levels, dealing with not only the the sort of you know narrow focused investigative work, but also doing that because inevitably you know at Washington Field that some of these things involve high level personnel, whether it's you know undersecretaries of state, you know a, a secretary of some cabinet agency. They very quickly can be investigations that involve um, very sensitive political issues and just by nature of the fact of who you're looking at. So navigating that uh, in the context of investigating is something that I had experienced a lot of in my career and put me in a position, I think, that, you know, higher ups in the in the chain of command said, well, you know, let's let's bring Pete over and, and have him work again with my partner. We came from a similar background um, to kind of investigate, but investigated in the context of a very highly politically charged environment. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned you were the special agent in charge. I bet our listeners don't know quite what that entails, but you led a field office, I imagine, of hundreds of FBI agents when you were in that role. 
So I was I was the assistant special agent oh. in charge, so the ASAC by acronym. But no, that's uh, still we had you know I had several hundred people under me. Um, you know we did every, every espionage case out of Washington Field, which involves because of jurisdictional issues. You know Vinton, this is getting way too in the weeds, but the law grants venue for any crime espionage related crime committed overseas to DC, and as a result, the the U.S. Attorney's Office in DC, their analog, of course, is the FBI's Washington Field Office. So. If something is going on in the embassy in New Delhi or Lagos or Moscow or wherever, that case is more often than not going to be investigated out of WFO because DC could bring charges if we find something. So I had every one of those cases under my supervision. I had you know squads looking at proliferation, um, you know all kinds of proliferation networks, whether that's you know Iran working on their ballistic missile program or North Korea trying to procure uh, you know nuclear type technologies, uh, as well as some other um, some other things which I can't get into, but it was great work because it's work not only in the United States, but it's work overseas, and it was continually challenging and just very fulfilling. So when you were conducting the Clinton email investigation, I was also in the Justice Department in Chicago, so I couldn't comment on that investigation at the time, but I did spend a lot of time looking at when that when that investigation was ongoing. I spent quite a while looking at other uh, prosecute looking at prosecutions of classified of, of cases in which people were prosecuted for mishandling classified materials. And what I found in my research was that it seemed that the only criminal prosecutions I could find were when people deliberately transferred classified material to another person. In other words, for example, let's say David Petraeus providing classified information to his then mistress or girlfriend or whatever. Now, I didn't find cases where people who had just been sloppy with the way that they had kept classified information or had kept it unguarded in some way, and that that alone served as the basis of a criminal prosecution. Is that Was that also your understanding at the time? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that was my experience, you know, working this for a very long time. And in fact, when we were debating, you know, and Director Comey, our, our sense was this didn't meet the threshold of what uh, DOJ had prosecuted in the past. And we actually went and asked the National Security Division at DOJ that, hey, this is our sense. But, uh, you know, Director Comey asked for, can you sort of catalog out all the instances where the department has prosecuted any sort of mishandling case? Because, you know, while our sense was this didn't meet the threshold, we wanted to be you know, sure and make sure that the historical data backed that up. And in fact, what we found was exactly as you, you kind of thought, and you know, Director Comey talked about this in his July 5th speech, that historically the department has prosecuted mishandling only in instances where you had, you know, where there was a strong evidence of scienter, you know, of intent on the person who did it. And that would be things like you know, transferring it to somebody who shouldn't have it, certainly anybody related to a foreign power or a journalist. Something where, you know, a second category where people had sort of affirmatively taken steps to hide it, to destroy evidence, to lie to us, to do things that demonstrated that not only did they know it was wrong, but they had taken active steps to kind of uh, hide the truth or obstruct knowing the truth. And then the third category is cases where there was just massive, gross retention. I mean, I'm talking, you know, Pentagon paper or, you know, uh, Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden type volumes of, disclo of disclosures. And of course, Snowden has not been convicted. You know, of course, he's entitled to a fair trial and these are only allegations. But those three big buckets were the types of things where the department had chosen to prosecute in the past. And that when you apply the facts that we had uncovered with regard to Clinton's use of the server, she didn't fall into those categories and it wasn't even close. So it wasn't a difficult uh, call. 
Yeah, it didn't seem like that to me either. But I guess one thing I've always wondered about is why open the case in the first place? In other words, if it, you know, it, I don't, it didn't seem to me at the beginning that there was an allegation that she was using the server to transfer classified material to a foreign government or someone, some other, you know, individual who was not entitled to that information. So why, why investigate it if the, if it was almost certain that the outcome was going to be that, you know, it wasn't the best way to keep your classified information, but uh, it wasn't going to meet the threshold, a prosecutorial threshold. Well, a couple of points. One, we didn't know what the outcome was going to be. I mean, this came in as a referral from uh, the inspector general of the intelligence community who had noticed in the course of production by the Clinton camp and State Department uh, to both Congress and FOIA requests that there was, in fact, classified that had been showing up in her unclassified emails. And so, um, you know, it's a judgment call. I, you know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, routinely, probably, you know, maybe every month, but certainly many times a year, there are folks, especially at senior levels of the U.S. government, that have spills of classified information into their email. Um, but this, I think, uh, there was sufficient volume. And just given her stature, you know, it is a defensible, in my opinion, and I wasn't part of this decision open the case. I came in after it was open. Yeah, I, I imagine you weren't, but I'm just curious what your thoughts were. Yeah, I do think it was a defensible decision because, you know, on the one hand, we could choose, and, and the people who decided to open it could have chosen not to do so. On the other hand, it was, um, you know, there were cases that had been opened on this sort of um, disclosure. I mean, you know, uh, former director of central intelligence and, and, and I think he was either secretary of defense or somewhere senior in DOD, you know, Deutsch was, had highly classified information on his own computer. And we opened a case back in the day to look at that. So it's a defensible decision to do it, one. And two, you know, in, in Director Comey's words, if there's nothing there and, you know, you come out at the end of this with kind of the FBI's good housekeeping seal of approval that, you know, this was all righteous, there wasn't a criminal violation here, the allegation was already out there. People had already started talking about, oh, there's classified information here and we're, you know, spinning and churning all kinds of information about what Secretary Clinton had or hadn't done. Having the FBI come in, take a look, conclude that nothing illegal had occurred is actually a good thing. So, uh, you know, I can, I can... It, I can defend the opening of the case. I, you know, that wasn't something that, that I participated in. But then once it's open, you got to do a good job. You got to get to the bottom of it. You got to do it in an objective way. And I'm very comfortable that we did that and that the we arrived at the right outcome. Yeah, I don't. And I'm not questioning, just so we're clear, I'm not questioning your integrity or your work on the oh, investigation yeah. at all. Uh, but I do my own myself as somebody who's an observer. It's easy to um, it's like these the, it's like the people who watch uh, NBA games and give their thoughts right in the studio. Um, so, uh, it's much easier to sit in the studio and give your thoughts than it is to slam dunk a basketball. But, uh, I will say as somebody sitting in the sidelines, that seemed like a very questionable decision to me because, and I wonder myself, I mean, it seemed to me that it was based in part on who the person was, who was being investigated and the fact that there had been questions raised. It was almost like, well, let's put the questions to rest sort of thing. I don't think that was I, I didn't I don't think that that was the right reasons to be investigating that that was my opinion or it seemed like that played into it because, you know, it's sort of it's sort of like if, for example, your threshold is you only prosecute a kilo or more of cocaine and it looks like there's only, you know, 50 grams. What, what are we doing here? Um, why are we wasting public resources on this? Yep. 
I, I understand that point, but I would tell you that, you know, given the, the factual threshold of what we had with the allegations about Secretary Clinton, opening a case is certainly consistent with other cases we had opened. So while I do think it could have gone either way, I can certainly point you to cases that the FBI did open and did investigate that were at or even less than the threshold of what we did with her. So I don't I don't see it as an outlier. Um, I do see it very close to the line, like many other cases that are close to the line. But, <laughs> sure. You know. By far and away, it's not the most, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the most questionable. So, again, I think it's defensible. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you know, to not have investigated it, there, there would have been any amount of criticism about, well, you know, you've investigated other things which are less, you know, kind of problematic than this. So are you giving her a pass because she is? I think, yeah, that's how I viewed it. Yeah. Yeah. It was done to sort of say, hey, we, we're not giving her a pass and we're going to run this down. I, I wonder what 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 then of this of the Wiener emails? Can you help us understand? Because that's really obviously it had a massive impact on the 2016 election and potentially on American history. What why the decision to sort of to to kind of open things up again uh, and look at the uh, at the emails on Anthony Wiener's laptop? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at New York, uh, the New York office of the FBI in the course of a um, crimes against children investigation uh, based on Wiener and some of his interactions with outside parties had come into possession of a laptop, which they had um, a limited legal authority to look for things specifically relating to crimes against children. And in the course of their initial review, as this laptop was processing, they saw what looked like to be a, a very large number, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of emails, potentially um, that related to Huma Abedin, Wiener's wife at the time, and uh, you know her interactions with Secretary Clinton and others. And so they noticed this, they flagged it late September, um, they made note of it to uh, FBI headquarters. Um, and that same night, um, you know, because of the potential that there might be something there, I reached out to the supervisor of the mid-year team and you know, said, hey, get up to New York and figure out what they had. And the following morning, they had a conference call with New York and got the word that, hey, you know, our processing's uh, still going on. The system keeps crashing. You know, they had kind of some vague descriptors and some of which were incorrect uh, about what was on that laptop. And so, you know, what happened then was the, the Washington Field folks, the mid-year team thought, okay, when New York's done, they're going to call us and let us know what the results are. Because we needed, we couldn't just look at it. We could not, within the scope of the legal authority that we had, Nobody had authority to get in and search that information for things relevant to the mid-year investigation. We needed enough to put into an affidavit to get a search warrant to look. So to do that, we needed rock-solid information that we could be comfortable putting in an affidavit and swear that out. So then this day happens, which is inexcusable, where you know each party thinks the other party is going to do it. It's, it happens all the time in bureaucracies. That doesn't make it okay. Um, and then you know when we finally... I, you know, I think at some point New York and it might have been somebody out of SDNY calls down to Maine Justice and said, hey, we've heard about this. You know, Maine Justice reaches out to us and the team and we're like, oh, hey, yeah, we never did hear back from New York. And so that's when, you know, we get back in touch and we found out the information. What was look, what was critical about this is we were very comfortable come July. We had scoured literally around the globe trying to track down the information, um, trying to track down every email. And we had several copies in many cases of the same email, because, you know, you've got a sender, you've got a recipient, yeah, of course, a copy, they forward it. And so we have like for every email, we've got three versions of it. And so we didn't think that there was anything new. But when we finally had that call in October, the thing that came out was that there is the presence of this domain, the and 
diving into the weeds, the att.blackberry.net domain that Clinton used for the first several months of her time as Secretary of State. And we never got any emails from that period. And the reason that was important when we heard about it was because that's the time where logically, if you're trying to understand what she knew or didn't know about the propriety of setting up and using a private email server, if there's anybody who warned her or told her it was okay to do it, logically it would have been in that initial time period. And we hadn't gotten any data from that, um, from that period. And so when we heard, finally, from New York, this is there, that's what made this suddenly really investigatively relevant. And that's, you know, and then we found out about it, breached the chain of command. It was clear that Nokomi said, yeah, you know, absolutely, go get a warrant. And if we're going to get a warrant, you know, we're going to be actively investigating. And because of his July 5th speech, because of later what he told Congress in that same time frame that the active investigation had closed, that then the discussion turns to this very, very hard debate about is he, is the FBI obligated to go back to Congress and tell them that that has changed? And, you know, that, that's been, we can, we can talk about it, certainly, um, you know, and a lot has been said and written about that, sort of the, the weight and burden of those discussions and debate and, and whether or not that was the right decision to, to announce to Congress that we had reopened it, because, of course, that's immediately leaked. And, of course, that's, you know, being used to attack Clinton on the campaign trail. Yeah, I, but before we get there, what I, what I, one thing I am interested in is, you know, let's is that was there anything conceivably that could have happened in those first few months when she was using the BlackBerry that would have mattered? In other words, even if, let's say, Colin Powell uh, sent her an email and said, I think setting up a private server is an awful idea. Don't do it. It's potentially going to result in the um, the. Uh, um, you know, others, you know, being having access to classified information, would that have really changed the prosecutorial analysis? Potentially. I mean, we didn't know. And so I think it's interesting. In fact, that Colin, I think it was Colin Powell, it was a former secretary of state who said, hey, look, you know, it, it was the opposite that I think, you know, right. people I know. Yeah. private email that, you know, make sure if you're doing that, these are potentially records and for FOIA purposes, make sure you're maintaining them. So there was some discussion, but it was not a don't do it. It was actually, you know, on the other side of and in fact, states' IT systems were crap. I mean, they 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 were, you know, problematic in, in large part, you know, because it's hard when you have embassies at every single country overseas that inevitably there are IT challenges. So it's not it's not entirely their fault. But but the point would be that in that early period, again, we didn't know. And as you know, you investigate. You don't know where you're going to land when you investigate. The the investigation is asking the question and gathering the information that allows you to later arrive at a conclusion. So having that initial period, that is logically when she and others would have had that first, if they occurred, you know, I'm doing this, is that okay? Or yeah, it's fine, or no, it's not. That's the sort of thing you talk about in your first days, because that's when you make the decision, if there is a decision in discussion, because then after that, that's settled. You know, you're often doing it and there isn't discussion probably about it. So getting to the bottom of that was was logical and was a legitimate investigative avenue. Again, would we have arrived at a different spot? You know, my gut is no, but is my gut or any investigator's gut enough to not go do that investigation? Of course not. You need to run it down. You need to do a thorough job of it. And you need to confirm that, in fact, hey, there is this logical stone to pick up and look under. And we went and did it. And, and we found what we expected. You know, actually, there was actually no, I think, no relevant emails that came out of that time period. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I I have a different take on it, but I don't. I do want to be mindful of of your time. I will. I am. Um, I am curious because I know you were involved in the drafting of that um, that uh, communication to Congress. Uh, what, do you believe that Director Comey handled that situation appropriately in terms of his communications uh, to the public uh, regarding your investigation? Well, it's a complicated process. And when you do that, you have to look at the entire span of those communications. So I did. I, t- I, drew, I took the first cut at drafting the letter that he notified Congress, uh, you know, again, kind of <laughs> putting the lie to any allegations that I was part of a deep state coup to, you know, undermine Trump. I, I drafted the thing that, you know, potentially swung or helped swing the election in his favor. Um, but I, and at the time when we debated that, when it first came up for discussion, that, you know, it was the, one of the first people and actually was the first to express some doubt about whether or not we should be doing it. Um, and that was all part of the same discussion where, you know, one of the senior attorneys out of OGC, you know, kind of said, Hey, look, aren't you worried that if, you know, we do this, it's going to potentially sway the election to Trump and, you know, come, we respond to look, if we do that, there lies the, you know, the, the damnation and the destruction of the FBI as an independent investigative, you know, entity or whatever his exact words were. So there was a lot of discussion. And while I at first didn't think we should do it, I was ultimately persuaded by Comey's reasoning that, you know, he had already said something about this topic and that were he not to do it, that would amount to concealing the truth in a way that would be even more harmful and and bad than the really bad option of telling Congress about it. But the reason I say put that in context is that's that's October, like the original sin, if you will, you know, takes place back in July where he makes that public speech that puts the bureau on this path that none of us foresaw of potentially having to confront the decision of whether or not to go back to Congress and let them know that the circumstances and facts on the ground had changed. That the statements he made that we weren't going to, we hadn't found anything that would merit prosecution and we were recommending DOJ not prosecute and telling Congress the same thing. That puts us on a path that places this, you know, bad or worse decision in October. And that we, I mean, it was the, the discussions and the pressure and the soul searching in October was extraordinary and was deep. That's not to say we didn't have those in, you know, whatever the, I think May, but certainly June, July timeframe about a speech. But I think, you know, and I've heard Deputy Director McCabe talk about this, and I, I certainly feel the same way that, you know, in hindsight, which is impossibly unfair, but in hindsight, I certainly wish that I had you know, kind of advocated a little more strongly not to, you know, not to go out and make that speech uh, in, in July, because that puts us on the path. And the, the the only outcome in October is the only right outcome, in my opinion, in October is what occurred. Um, so, but again, coulda, woulda, shoulda, I can tell you in July, and again, in October, every single person from the director to the deputy to all the attorneys and all the investigators, people were you know, and this sounds Boy Scoutish. People were trying to do the right thing with regard to their duty to the Constitution and to the American people. This wasn't a, you know, some politically, you know, all kinds of machinations going on beneath the surface. This was truly people trying to do their duty and doing it humbly and doing it in a way that was um, motivated by the right things. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. And I, I will just say for the record, I don't doubt that I I view uh, Director Comey as a tragic figure who tried to do the right thing. And in doing so, um, you know, potentially 
you know, created this very circumstances that he sought to avoid. Um, but I, you know, I, it's just, it's a matter of one's judgment, I suppose, rather than I don't question his motivations at all. It's interesting to talk about these things. I know that, um, our listeners are probably even more interested to hear about the, the, the second investigation that you worked on, but I, I find all of the work you've done very fascinating. Both of those cases are cases of, of a lifetime, cases that have shaped our, our nation, uh, in profound ways. Um, let's, so let's, I do want to, I should switch gears and talk about the Russia investigation. How, how was that initiated? Um, so it started when we received information from a friendly foreign government that they had met with a, a named advisor to the Trump campaign's foreign policy team by the name of George Papadopoulos. And Papadopoulos had a conversation with them in the spring of 2016, uh, where he told them that a member of the Trump team had received an offer of assistance from the Russian government or somebody affiliated with the Russian government to coordinate the release of information that Russia had that would be damaging to uh, both Clinton and Obama. And so, you know, they heard that and they didn't think much of it. Um, Much later, you know, throughout this time period in the spring and early summer, we are seeing intrusion activity by the people associated with the government of Russia into all kinds of entities, but specifically including the DNC and the DCCC on the Democratic side. And then we see a huge dump of information via WikiLeaks of that same material uh, in July, mid-late July. And when that happens, the members of this friendly foreign government who talked to Papadopoulos, you know, they, they initially maybe, I don't know what they, if they discounted it or didn't think much of it, but then they see this and they say, you know, holy cow, this is exactly what Papadopoulos, you know, talked about potentially happening. And furthermore, Papadopoulos knew about it, as it turns out, before anybody else, you know, did, in the, in the, even in the U.S. government. So, you know, either he's clairvoyant or, you know, potentially there's something there. So that causes them, they, they get in contact with the U.S. government that eventually comes into the FBI and into counterintelligence division. We open a case based on that, not on anything else. There wasn't, you know, the Steele dossier or any other information was not the cause of the opening of these cases. And we open a very focused, narrow investigation, not on Trump, not on his campaign, but specifically on the allegation that somebody on the campaign had received this offer from Russia to coordinate the release of this information. And so from that, you know, this broad, um, what's called an umbrella investigation on an unsub, on an unknown subject. We don't know who received this offer. We opened the case called Crossfire Hurricane. And then with, within that, underneath that, kind of create a matrix to figure out who the most likely people are who might have received that information based on their prior relationship or interactions with the government of Russia. And that initially is Paul Manafort, Herta Page, uh, George Papadopoulos, and then, you know, a little bit later, uh, Mike Flynn, Jim Flynn and start looking into whether or not any of these people were the person who received it. And as it turns out, it ultimately was George Papadopoulos. But that's that's kind of the kicking off of, of everything. Mm-hmm. That investigation was ongoing, of course, before the election. It continued after the election. Were all of these separate pieces organized sort of under one umbrella going forward? In other words, was, for example, the Michael Flynn investigation, all of that part of the same umbrella investigation? Um, so those cases were, and what's interesting is even within the FBI, that when, when, when you heard crossfire hurricane or just crossfire, that, that it, it always was just this narrow thing, but it took on kind of a definitional shift where crossfire became, because 
what the Russians were doing, and this is always about what the Russians were doing. This was not, it wasn't Trump. It wouldn't have been, it would have been the same if it was Rubio or Cruz or Kasich or Bernie Sanders or, you know, Hillary or anybody else. It was about what the Russians were doing. And so what the Russians were doing was really broad, right? I mean, they had this discrete kind of interaction that we were looking into. But they're also at the same time, there's all the cyber activity where they're attacking voting infrastructure. There's all this, you know, shenanigans that we caught on to pretty late about what they're doing on social media. They have all the things that they're doing with their regular intelligence officers, the ones stationed here in the United States, uh, you know, people overseas that are that are doing certain things. So crossfire definitionally, certainly in the public image, but even within the FBI, like if you were to ask somebody in November, oh, crossfire, that's a really broad thing. So it came that work became very broad. I mean, you know, we start looking at others. Certainly we're looking at foreign entities, you know, guys like Konstantin Kalimnik, you know, who is interfacing with Manafort. Manafort is giving polling data to, you know, as we start looking at all this, we're investigating this broad Russian activity. And, you, you know, that, that was kind of a, it, that wasn't definitionally what Crossfire was, but that came to be, Crossfire came to be synonymous with the investigative response to the Russian attacks writ large. There's a lot of uh, hand wringing on both sides about um, the 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 um, the use of uh, criminal investigations to investigate politicians. And you, frankly, there's a bipartisan concession consensus among politicians that they shouldn't be investigated by the FBI. Yeah, right. In in my home state, in Patty's home state of Illinois, we rely on the FBI to clean up a lot of corruption in our own state. In fact, I'd say many Illinois residents are very pro having the federal uh, federal law enforcement take a look at uh, politicians in our own state. But obviously, um, it's fair to say that there are complications that come with investigating a campaign or a candidate. Um, this is, as far as I know, um, you know, the, the, the certainly it's the first public investigation of a can, of a candidacy for its contacts with foreign entities. And I wonder, because this is unfortunately not going to stop. I think it's clear that we're going to have Russian interference efforts in the future, perhaps other states. How is there? How can the bureau conduct those investigations in a way that can insulate itself from um, the partisan um, attacks that are soon to follow? Well, I think that's one of the profound questions to come out of all this. And you know, just one one little nit, I would say, you know, we we never investigated the candidacy or the campaign. I mean, these were always sure. discrete people, right? But so the question goes, and this is what we grappled with, particularly when it came to opening a president or a case on the president. You know, he is the head of the executive branch. He sets foreign policy. Is it appropriate for somebody subordinate to him within the executive branch to be investigating him? And who makes that decision? And and is the FBI certainly, you know, looking back at the lessons of the, the Hoover era, do we want the domestic, you know, security and investigative agency choosing to open cases on, you know, the head of the executive branch? Is that really the sort of structure of power we want within the U.S. government. But then the question is, okay, I, I understand the concerns. I don't think it should be up to the FBI. I think there needs to be some sort of outside imprimatur. But then, okay, so who is that? Is that the attorney general? Well, look what happened with the whistleblower complaint in Ukraine. 
You know, that was it, that is the thing that led to the impeachment of the president of the United States. But that is the same thing that the politically appointed Republican attorney general of the United States that didn't merit an investigation. So it, it's clear to me that if you want that sort of political approval, there is going to be either a finger on the scale to not do it if it relates to the party in power and potentially to do it if it's the opposing party. So that's no good. Because, I mean, what's the ultimate outcome of that? That there's not going to be, at some level, there's not ever going to be an investigation that you are free from the burden of, you know, having to ever face an investigation for potentially illegal conduct, if that's the case. And so, you know, the other option, something we did that I advocated for is, you know, tr get the get other branches of the government involved. And in fact, within days of opening the case of Less than, less than days, within a day of opening the case, I think, or one or two days of opening the case on Trump, then acting director McCabe, along with Rod Rosenstein, the DAG, go up to the gang of eight at Congress to brief them. And that is entirely part of, you know, trying to get, this isn't just the FBI gone rogue. This is, hey, Senate Majority Leader McConnell, hey, Speaker of the House and third in chain for the presidency, Speaker Paul Ryan and Devin Nunez, the head of the House Intel community, and Senator Burr, the head of the Senate Intel Committee, we open these cases. This is what we're doing and why. We want you to know, what are your questions? Answered all those questions. Nobody objected. And the goal of that, of course, is to sit there and convey legitimacy to what we were doing. This isn't the FBI gone sideways. This is the FBI trying to sit there and say, we are doing this, and we want this to be a very legitimate, in fact and in perception, set of investigations. And so the fact of the matter is that after that, all their questions were answered. Nobody there said we shouldn't do it or shouldn't be doing it or should limit it or close any of these things. And so, again, to your, to your question, though, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. And, you know, God willing, God willing. We never, ever encounter a president again in our history where we have these same sort of But I don't know what the right answer is because the minute you get the political elements involved in the decision that invariably is going to place a force politically, one side or the other, that isn't kind of straight down the middle. Yeah, I have to say, really what, what happened there is there's a change of the rules of the game that no one anticipated. In, in other words, I think you were behaving as if uh, politicians in Washington were going to care enough about the institutions and about our government to, you know, um, you know, not to try to politicize or to make false claims about the FBI after the fact. And what I think no one could have anticipated at that time is that Trump would go full nuclear on the FBI um, and really start a misinformation campaign to undermine and destroy public confidence in the FBI. And Republicans in Congress, despite have, having, I wouldn't say bought in in the beginning, but at the very least not, tr not raised an objection in the beginning to aid him in that effort. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's part of that's that's just one example of kind of the, the, the norm busting, the, 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 the kind of shattering of all those assumptions uh, that have maintained the checks and balances that, you know, are, are the founding fathers envisioned when they crafted the Constitution and the effective checks and balances. And, you know, you go back and you read the Federalist Papers and all all their assumptions about, oh, 
these things would never happen. There's never going to be elected somebody who would do this. And if so, they would never be tolerated by this, this different branch that we're going to create to balance it out. The, 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 the kind of, when, when you read that from a sort of baseline expectations of what could and couldn't be possible, this presidency has shattered those. And so the question is, you know, what, what we've got to do at some point, whenever we return to normal, is sit there and say, okay, are these, did, did the system withstand this pressure test? You know, where did it spring leaks? Where did it outright break? And God forbid, I mean, I am terrified of what another four years of a Trump presidency, how that will shift that landscape and the much more lasting devastating damage that's going to occur to our institutions as we understand and expect them to work today. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. I will say I, I love the hopeful return to normal. I hope we, we <laughs> do. I worry that even if uh, Trump is not reelected, that, uh, you know, that he is his his presidency will have unfortunate lasting impacts. Uh, you know, one thing I am curious about, you mentioned go, that Rod Rosenstein went to the Hill What's your take on him? I find him very enigmatic and bizarre. I don't know what to make of him. Uh, I agree with you. I, <laughs> I, I don't understand. Um, I don't understand his surprise when he drafted the letter that the president asked him to write about Director Comey and told him, put in Russia, and he refused, that he didn't somehow understand when he came back and wrote a letter about his um, dismay in disagreement with the way that Comey had handled the Clinton matter, that that wouldn't be used as the as the as the justification for firing uh, Comey, and I don't understand how he could not understand the forces at play at the White House. Because look, I know everybody's shocked about how Trump was breaking all these norms, but it was pretty apparent by the late spring of 2017 what was going on with this man. Um, and then I also don't know why he, in light of that participation which gave rise to concerns about obstruction, why he continued, why, why he didn't choose to recuse. Um, you know, I know he said he talked with the department's ethics officials, but, you know, in my mind and those of other investigators I was working with, you know, we were looking at that saying, you know, we're part of what we're looking at is whether or not the president uh, committed obstruction by firing Comey and you were party to those discussions and actually wrote something that was used to justify that potentially obstructive criminal firing at a minimum, you're a fact witness. How is it that you can possibly stay as the leader of the special counsel and kind of overseeing that effort? And I just don't, I, I can't square that. And I, I don't understand how he, as a leader of this, you know, gets on a plane with Trump, you know, and flies down from D.C., I think it was to Florida, you know, and emerges from the plane still with his job intact. And, you know, at some point says about, you know, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land this plane. What, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, in the context of saying that to somebody in the White House or, or wherever it was said. So I, I don't, I, he is, as with you, I think an enigma is a, is a, uh, a fair term to use. Uh, and, and I can't explain a lot of, of the behavior that I saw from him. And certainly, you know, one last thing, I, you know, I, I did hear about contemporaneously when he offered to wear a wire into the White House, the detail with which he talked about that, it was clear to me that was not a joke, um, you know, which unnamed sources within DOJ came out and said, oh, he was kidding around. You know, and in fact, there was some discussion where he had it talked about invoking the 25th Amendment. I don't think it was a formal, I have asked these people whether or not they'd vote one way or the other, and I've discussed it with them. It wasn't that. 
but it was brought up in seriousness, as apparently it was done by other members of the cabinet. And so, you know, I don't know why there's this not a why there's a backing off of those statements. I think those are reasonable concerns to have and to talk about. And, you know, to try and minimize that, it, it strikes me potentially as to, you know, maintain job security is, um, again, I, I can't get inside his head and it's an enigma to me. Yeah, I think it's that's a it's my 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 attempt to be kind in in the word that I use to describe it. I, I um, you were at the bureau when Comey was fired. What was your reaction to that event and the people who were around you? Shock. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember coming in and uh, you know looking in the I don't know, CNN, but one of the one of the broadcast networks are following this motorcade in LA overhead, and it was like you know, OJ Simpson with, uh, you know, redux, you know, going in the slow motion chase through the streets of LA. And then, you know, the Chiron on the bottom saying, you know, can be fired. And it was, it was a shock. I think there was always certainly in my mind and those of us, you know, this sort of, you know, premonition or fear, uh, you know, kind of nebulous fear that Comey was living on borrowed time. The minute he started, you know, asserting the FBI's independence with regard to Trump's personal interests, but to have it come out that way where, you know, he's, he's, he finds out about it over the TV and it was, it was shock across the bureau. I mean, I, you know, notwithstanding, you know, Sarah Sanders comments that all these people were cheering that he later, she later admitted to Mueller's investigators was a outright fabrication. People were in shock. This was devastating. This was something, you know, he was a, a popular leader, um, a charismatic leader and, you know, I think the sense was that he had a strategic vision for the future of the bureau that a lot of people understood and were lining up behind. So um, it was surreal. And then obviously, of course, that immediately transitioned to a deep concern over what was coming for our investigations and that a certain a certainty that it was related to the work we were doing uh, about Trump and those around him and uh, that something what might come and how do we protect the investigations and the work we were doing from any sort of you know potentially illegal activity there was some talk um in in sort of revelation recently about how rod rosenstein effectively limited the Mueller investigation can you explain that to our for our listeners and to the extent that you 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 can tell us about that yeah, so I didn't see that, and I wasn't aware of it. And if it's true, it's really concerning. So essentially, what what there's reporting through uh, Mike Schmidt at the New York Times, I think, who said that, uh, you know, he had received information that Rosenstein had specifically excluded uh, any sort of counterintelligence activities from Mueller's uh, mandate, so as to prevent that from happening. I, I didn't see evidence of that. You know, I was again between the time that we opened the case on Trump to the special counsel appointed was, you know, a week and a half at most. And I then went over and set up the FBI, set up the team. The special counsel's team was responsible for the setting up the entirety of the FBI's uh, effort within that team. And it was clear that, you know, Mueller was not, the special counsel regs don't talk about intelligence or counterintelligence. His appointment orders did not talk about counterintelligence activity. And so it was clear that that was not something that was going to be part of their mandate, but that we had discussions about it. And I made clear that, you know, we have to do this. We have to do it from a holistic sort of perspective about understanding everything that had gone on. And the understanding was, okay, well, that's clearly part of the FBI's national security mission. So do it within the FBI's authorities. And I was struggling to set that up because that's a really huge question. 
I mean, if you're trying to tackle and understand, particularly from a financial perspective, the broad scope of this, I mean, it's a massive, massive undertaking because you have to go back to the late 80s. And I didn't, I was struggling with how to staff that the right way. And I could envision a point in time where we got to saying, hey, to do this, we're going to need all these records and that there would have been a really vigorous debate and disagreement between the FBI or even within the special counsel's office, but ultimately would come down to a debate. But I didn't see, I never heard or felt that Rosenstein or anybody else within ODAG or anywhere else was limiting us in our ability to do that. If that's true, and I, you know, Schmidt's a New York Times reporter, he's going to have good sources. If that's true, that's really disappointing and disturbing that that it should not have occurred. But I didn't I didn't see evidence of that. Um, You've spoken publicly, uh, particularly since the publication of your book, about how you believe that Donald Trump uh, is compromised by the Russians. Can you tell us why you believe that and what that means, what exactly that means to you? Yeah, so I do think he's compromised. And what's important to understand from a counterintelligence perspective, compromise takes many forms. You know, on the on the worst case, far into the scenario, you've got a Manchurian candidate, right? Somebody who is wittingly aware that they're in a clandestine relationship with a foreign power, that they're taking tasking, that they receive a list of questions, that, you know, they're doing it clandestinely. They're going and either acting or getting information, doing things that are, you know, reflecting the desires of the hidden hand of this foreign power. On the other end of that, You've got somebody who is motivated not by any sort of, you know, deep controlled agent relationship like that, but somebody who is because of their financial interests, their ego interests, their power interests are doing things not only to further those, but because somebody has leverage and can force them to do it. And that's where my belief is President Trump falls. It is clear, you know, and a great example of that, there's stuff I can't talk about, but there's a good now public example of that is when Trump on the campaign trail in 16 says, you know, I think it's in North Carolina at a campaign event, I have no financial relationship with Russia whatsoever. And he goes through and he kind of expands on that. No way, shape, form, nothing, nothing, nothing. Same time, exact same moment, Michael Cohen and others are seeking a deal for a Trump Tower in Moscow, where, you know, according to Cohen, they're going to give Vladimir Putin the entire top floor. Well, the minute Trump says that, he knows it's not the truth. The minute he says that Vladimir Putin and those in Russia also know it's not the truth. So having the truth come out would damage him. And the minute he says that, there's this implicit leverage point, this implicit compromise that if Russia were to release that information, it would be damaging to Trump. And so that is going to cause him to do and behave in ways that are not placing the national security interests of America first. They're placing his interests from preventing the lie from coming out or preventing the hidden profit, you know, allegedly, you know, if he's getting money funneled through any number of entities into the the Trump financial empire, you know, allegedly that might be, you know, causing or creating benefit to him that he doesn't want known because of their illicit nature. All these things create leverage over him that is damaging to his ability to put the national security interests of America first. Uh, I know we have a question from our listener that kind of relates to this point. Uh, Patty, do you can, do you have that? Uh, as far as classified information, you know, folks are wondering if there are any facts or, you know, some sort of thread that maybe an investigative reporter can look into further. Um, so, of course, I can't, you know, I'm going to honor, you know, my obligations to protect not only classified information, but, you know, sort of investigative things that haven't been disclosed for a variety of reasons. Right. I mean, that's it's the law. Uh, there may be ongoing investigations. There may be investigations that disproved any of it. But, you know, that question ultimately is one for the attorney general and for the director of national intelligence. One thing I would point out 
you know, there's been a host of material that's been declassified, in my opinion, negligently so, potentially criminally so, because it's put sources and lives in danger and at risk. But what bothers me deeply when I look at all the material coming out of this administration that's been declassified, it's very one-sided. It almost without exception serves to protect the president, serves to advance this one-sided narrative that what we were doing was without merit and is unbalanced in the fact that if you had the kind of countervailing information, it would present a very different picture. Now, I can't, I don't have the authority to legally or ethically or, you know, sort of my own moral code to go out and talk about all this. But I would say that is a very reasonable question for the public to ask. It's a very reasonable question for um, congressional oversight committees to ask. It's a very legitimate question for inspectors general to ask why there is within this body of information that's being declassified such a one-sided picture that is being conveyed to the American public. Wow, that's very interesting. And, and to get to that one, uh, to kind of expand briefly on that one Sided picture, of course. Um, Donald Trump has has excoriated um, the inv- the investigation that you once led, uh, excoriated the FBI, and you have pl- you know played a starring role in his portrayal of that. And I'm curious, you know, when did you when did you know that, for example, your text messages were were public? How how did this how did this how did you begin to hear about what was going on with that? Um, so the first indication was that somebody had, uh, you know, leaked the the nature of them to both the New York Times and the Washington Post because they both published articles uh, in early December of 2017 um, talking about the political nature of some of the comments. And, you know, they did know that they were you know, private communications and they didn't have detail. But that was what kind of opened the uh, the, the beginnings of the attacks. And then certainly... You know, the the illegal disclosure of some of those texts to the press, you know, DOJ brought in folks of the media in the middle of literally in the middle of the night, gave them the text to review, told them they could not source that to the Department of Justice. And they did that all the, you know, overnight before uh, the deputy attorney general was to go before the Hill um, to talk about some of this stuff. And so there, there was clearly a political motive to that. I'm suing right now the Department of Justice for the illegal release of those texts. But then they, you know, and so they were kind of concentrated, stripped of any sort of context, removed from any sort of, you know, the, the news of the day that was prompting the comments in the text, and then thrown as this kind of dry kindling into these partisan hands that immediately starts being used, misused, misrepresented in a way to uh, undermine uh, undermine everything that the, the Bureau and the special counsel was doing. And it's met with silence. There is no defense from the FBI, from the DOJ. Uh, I can't respond because I'm a Bureau employee and we're prohibited from talking to the, the media. And it just takes on this, you know, wild life of its own where, where you know, the truth is stripped away, your, your true identity and history is stripped away, and you're continually being painted as this caricature, particularly on kind of extreme partisan media and in Congress that it's simply a lie. And there's no, there's no response. There's, there's no pushback. And, you know, that was enormously frustrating. I I can imagine. I I can imagine, Uh, you know, all of us have personal political views. When I was at the justice department under both George W. Bush and president Obama, I had, uh, um, you know, I had my own private political views. Uh, they didn't, you know, I, no one was reading my emails or 
you know, eavesdropping on my conversations um, about those subjects. Um, obviously, in your case, um, you know, those those text messages, which I, you know, I imagine you thought were going to be private, um, had such an outsized influence in your life. You know, as you sit here today, do you regret any of uh, sending any of those? Like, do you feel like or do you feel that, hey, you know, the the wrong was so obviously disproportionate. What happened to you as a consequence of those was so disproportionate that you don't regret them at all? Well, look, certainly I regret the impact they've had on my personal life and, you know, doing, I've done wrong there and, you know, going and, and seeking to uh, take responsibility for that and make that right uh, in my personal life is something that is, is very important to me and that I'm doing now. But from a professional perspective, you know, yeah, was it, would I do that again? Of course not. I mean, that was, you know, putting something that I, I would not do again, you know, at the same time, to your point, I do think there, you know, every employee has, personal opinions and they voice them. And, you know, the fact of the matter is these were not in some Facebook or Twitter posts. It was not in some, you know, unit or section meeting where I'm saying in front of a bunch of people, it was done in a very private context on devices that department policy allows, you know, personal use of. So again, and I think that the phrase I use in the book is just because something is okay, doesn't make it smart. And and that's certainly, you know, kind of the way I, I look at that in, in retrospect. Uh, for obviously due to that, you were kind of sitting on the sidelines uh, for a good portion of the Mueller investigation. And ultimately you had to read, I imagine, the Mueller report the same way that I did, uh, printing it off of the Internet or reading it on the Internet. What was your reaction to reading the Mueller report? It was very mixed. I mean, you know, obviously I, I, I was... <laughs> I regretted not being there to see it through till the end. I was curious about all the material that was redacted. I was livid with the mendacious way that the attorney general presented, misrepresented the content of what was actually in the report. Uh, and I had questions. I mean, you know, the, the, the questions about what was unsaid and, you know, whether, why at the end of the day, in my mind, the biggest questions that remained unanswered were with regard to President Trump. You know, he wasn't interviewed. If you look at the end of the report, it attaches all the questions that the special counsel provided to Trump's counsel, as well as the responses. And there, there are entire questions and sub-questions that are completely unanswered, like did not even make an effort to answer. And so the question is, well, why? What's what's there behind those unanswered questions? You know, particularly there. You know, and as an example, what jumps to mind is you know he refused to answer any of the questions about his interactions with Flynn, his you know General Flynn's national security advisor, about Flynn's conversations with the Russians. You know, did he know about him? Did he tell Flynn to do anything? What was his awareness of him? And the question at the end of the day with Flynn was never really. It wasn't about whether or not Flynn would lie to us. We it would, the issue at the end of Flynn was what was his relationship with Russia. And also, what was his relationship about these calls and Russia, particularly as regarded the president, others in the administration, but certainly the president? Is this something where Trump told him to do or not do something, to act in a certain way? Um, because Russia had just attacked our elections to help elect the man. And so getting to the bottom of that remains one of the, you know, sort of untold mysteries, at least as, as the public knows. So it, it was a very complex reaction um, reading and rereading that report. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, certainly there were there are decisions that were questionable to me, like not forcing a sit down interview of Trump. Um, 
But on the same token, I'm much more charitable towards uh, Robert Mueller and his team than many who are already. I I saw you know Jeff Tubin has a book out kind of proclaiming it a failure, which I, I or you know greatly mistaken, which I don't um, I don't subscribe to that view at all. I actually thought it was one of the most one of the finest pieces of writing that I had read, just in terms of the sheer quality and the precision of the work that went into that. Yeah. And it's deep, right? I mean, it's distilled. So like every page you see in the Mueller report reflects like, you know, 40 pages of investigative material, but here let's go back out. And that's a really interesting point you made. And it, it brings me back to some of your observations about uh, director Comey. Both men are obviously very different, have very different perspectives on their roles and responsibility as leaders of the FBI. But let's look at director Comey. And the struggle that he, you know, has publicly talked about what regulations and the expectations of the behavior and the restrictions of the office and regulation are and where when you perceive a personal duty as a senior leader at that level to either fall with traditional norms of behavior or to break that and speak. And people get livid, right? It, it come me for you should not have spoken on July 5th. It doesn't matter what you thought. It doesn't matter you personally what you believed the American people needed to know or not know, you've got these regulations that you absolutely, and, and tradition that you should hew to. Now, fast forward to Mueller. He, he, he is an institutionalist. If I, if I were to look up institutionalist in my little middle dictionary, there's a picture of Director Mueller. He believes, and in a way that is absolutely consistent throughout his behavior, what does the law say? What does regulation say? What does tradition say? And that is going to dictate what I do or not do. And whatever I think, might be the right thing, whatever my personal belief, however strong that is, I, at the end of the day, must adhere to this behavior. And if there's a problem, people can sort it out. And so what happens? You know, people are livid. Well, why did Director Mueller, he knew all this other stuff. Yeah, he might have been limited by the special counsel regulations, but he should have said something. Well, you just argued the opposite with Director Comey. So pick, what do you want? Do you want somebody who's going to absolutely hew to the letter of the law and regulation? Or do you want somebody when they have this internal belief that their duty is to go beyond that, that they should do it? Because they're they're a wonderful, not wonderful is the wrong word. They're, they're this profound contrast of the different sides of this argument. And, you know, I would love someday somebody, you know, write, write this sort of a, a, a thought piece on you know, where does that where where does that line lie? Where where is you struggle at this level of what your obligation is to the institution and its norms versus breaking from that? And 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 where do you where do you choose to do that? I mean it's it's an interesting it's an interesting comparison. And if you're gonna criticize one, then then be consistent and, and don't criticize the other. Well, yeah, I, I feel obligated since you're calling that out that I am I'm the guy who wrote, uh, actually, Robert Mueller was awesome after he testified and have consistently been of the view that as somebody who has seen overzealous prosecutors who have abused their power, exercised their discretion poorly, um, I will never criticize a prosecutor for practicing restraint. I will never criticize a prosecutor for acting within the bounds of what he thought, you know, viewing limits to his power. Okay, I think that from my perspective, Robert Mueller, I don't join those who criticize Robert Mueller, which is why it's so critical of Jeff Tubin's book. I think that people who expected more from Robert Mueller had uh, outsized expectations that were unrealistic that they brought themselves to that investigation. And 
as somebody who was partly in it and partly watching it from the sidelines, you had to see this sort of crazy hysteria that built where Robert Mueller was some sort of superhero who is going to wave a magic wand or twirl his cape and somehow lead Donald Trump out of the White House in chains, which is not, in my view, the a realistic outcome of that investigation. I think that's right. Um, and, and look, I, I think there is valid uh, debate to be had about within the constraints of his authorities, what was done or not done. Um, but I do think broadly, when you step back from that, I, I think your argument has a lot of merit. Well, let, before we go, I want to talk to you a little bit about your book. It's made a, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's been making a lot of headlines. A lot of people are excited about it. It's called Compromised Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. Tell us, what, the, what is the threat of Donald J. Trump? What are, our, our listeners are hyper-informed. They've been wait, like listening and they've been kind of waiting at the edge of their seats for your every word. Why do they want to buy this book? Because it lays out the perspective of a counterintelligence uh, expert's view over 20 years of working this, why we have never seen a presidency this vulnerable to foreign influence in modern history, and that that isn't an opinion, that I sit there and I lay out the case, one, to explain how, how a counterintelligence professional approaches the work and a view to the world, and then laying out the case methodically the things that Trump has done and continues to do that places him unreasonably and unacceptably under coercive pressure to Russia and how that explains all these inexplicable decisions that we see him either doing or not doing with regard to Russia that don't have any benefit to the United States and national security that do benefit Russia and how we can explain that based on this coercive leverage that Russia holds over him. And in light of that, understanding that that hasn't improved since 2016, that it's still there, that Russia is still attacking us, the reasons why they are doing that, and the reasons why it matters today as we head into the elections in the fall. Wow. Well, I will, I will tell you, I, I often learn from our guests, uh, but I have, this is a, a conversation which I have learned a lot from. And I have also been on the edge of my seat, uh, which is not uh, which is unusual. I, I have to say I've learned a lot from you, Pete. And I also want to thank you for your many years of service to this country and tell you that, you know, I, I you should be proud of having lived. A, uh, so and you're still a young guy, but living a life of such consequence and have making such an impact, trying to move the ball forward and making a difference for our country. Well, I really appreciate that. I mean, that means a lot. And, and, and thank you for those, those kind words. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 